Hey, good people. It's Scott. Today's episode is the second of a three-part story I'm trying to tell. If you missed the previous episode, go back and listen to that one first, and that'll make today's episode make a lot more sense. Anyway, enjoy. Heavily Pixelated is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. After being molested, after asking my mother for help, after being forced to go to that terrible party, I became a stage four neurotic. I suffered from insomnia. I forced myself to read the Bible. I studied the Bible uh, every night. Honestly, I understood about maybe... 8% of it. The Bible, it was a kind of rule book for life, especially when it came to the Ten Commandments. I'd go over the Ten Commandments and try to figure out which ones I hadn't violated and which ones I had. And so I'd lay in bed at night and I would be awake, completely racked with guilt over absurd things. I don't know if I qualified as an insomniac, but I was awake almost every night. And I would lay there in the dark, listening to my brother sleep across the room. And I would methodically backtrack through my relatively brief life. And I would find all the things that I did wrong. Large or small, it didn't matter. You know, looking back on it now, 40 years later, I think I was trying to find the reason why my mother didn't help me. In Catholicism, confession is the only path to salvation. The only relief, the only solution was to confess. In the middle of the night, I would lay there in the dark and I would just feel this burning need to confess as soon as possible. And I couldn't get back to sleep until I confessed. And so I would get out of bed to three o'clock in the morning and I would go into my parents' room down the hall. In the dark, I could hear them both sleeping and I would just go to my mother's side of the bed and I would, I would try to wake her up. Mom. Mom. What? Mom, I have something to tell you. Go back to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. Mom, I need to tell you right now. I said a mean thing to a kid in the third grade. You remember that kid, Barry? I told him that his pants were ugly. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Go back to bed now, okay? Okay, Mom. Thank you. I love you. I remember one night my father, exhausted by the fact that I was waking them both up on a routine basis. He got out of bed and took me to the kitchen and he poured me a shot of whiskey. Drink that, he said. What is it? I asked. It'll help you sleep. I took a little taste of it. It set my throat on fire. (coughs) Dad, this is burning my throat. I I can't drink this. Drink all of it, he said. That's the only way you're going to get to sleep tonight. I was skeptical. Are you sure this is going to help me? He said, well, it helps me almost every night. I don't think kids are supposed to have this, I said, and then I choked the rest of it down. (laughs) 
And then, after a couple years of turmoil and despair, of waking my parents up in the middle of the night, of Bible reading and hand-wringing, something new came into my life. Something that gave me hope. Something that gave me an opportunity to express myself. Like a sailor lost at sea on a moonless night, there was a star on my horizon. A star that gave me the direction I was looking for. Yellow machines, inexplicably, began appearing everywhere in 1980. Shopping malls, department stores, hamburger joints, pizza parlors, gas stations. The machines were tall, taller than I was. They had TVs built into them. They were painted an aggressively bright yellow. The screen itself was, was beautiful to look at. It was this black background, this neon blue maze. There were these little white dots that you had to clear out of the maze. There were four ghosts on patrol, each a different color. There was a mouth, just a simple yellow mouth. You had to guide the yellow mouth through the maze, and you had to avoid the patrolling ghosts. The object was clear to me to stay away from the ghosts and eat all the dots. That was gripping enough, but the real selling point for me, the real selling point was when you would eat the bigger dots in the corners and suddenly the tables would turn. Suddenly the ghosts would lose their color. They would all become blue and they were vulnerable. You could actually use the yellow mouth to eat them. Being able to turn the tables like that just filled my heart with joy. For those few seconds, you were absolutely safe. Seeing Pac-Man for the first time was strange for me because not only did I want to play it, of course I wanted to play it. I knew immediately that I wanted to be great at it. I wanted to learn everything I could about it. A couple weeks later, I found a book called Mastering Pac-Man, written by a guy named Ken Houston, U-S-T-O-N. The book basically told me how I could win Pac-Man. I could become, as Ken says in the book, a Pac-Master. And this was the only thing I really cared about at the time. I took the book everywhere with me. If you, if you grow up in the country, you spend a lot of time sitting in the back seat of cars. I always would bring my Mastering Pac-Man book. I would study the mazes that were in the book. I would study the mazes in the name of learning every intricacy I could, thinking that one day I would actually get a quarter. One day I'd be able to play the game. And when that time came, I wanted to make the most of that moment. And so I studied these mazes. I mean, they were completely fascinating to me. They were like in old movies when you'd see pirates with an eye patch on unfolding maps to, that would lead them to treasure. These mazes would lead me to a kind of treasure. These mazes were the key to some sort of personal glory. I just kept thinking, you know, I kept playing the game in my mind. Me controlling Pac-Man, staying away from the, the ghosts, eating all the dots, and turning the tables at the perfect moment in the name of victory. I learned lots of things in Ken's book. 
For example, I learned that Pac-Man moves just a touch slower when eating dots. I learned that the ghosts patrolling the mazes, they move faster than Pac-Man. However, Pac-Man can turn corners faster than the ghosts can turn corners. And I also learned that the most vulnerable spot in the Pac-Man maze is, quote, the long southernmost path. It's basically the long tunnel at the bottom of the maze. As long as I stayed out of that pathway, I would be okay. I'd survive. Why do you got your sunglasses on? <laughs> because it's a sunny day. This is, of course, my mom. The sun is bad for your eyes. Didn't you know that? She does not want to do this interview. Very bad. It's one of the worst things for your eyes that can possibly happen. So. Which is presumably why she has her sunglasses on. My relationship with my family has been strained the past four or five years. So I decided to go home to talk about things we've long needed to talk about, to address subjects that no one really wants to address, and to see if there's a way for us to find our way back to each other, to heal. The epitome of my annoyance with my family is, is, is really summed up by an expression they've started trafficking in maybe three or four years ago. It's the idiom, it is what it is. It is what it is. They use it constantly in conversation. It drives me crazy. I hate this expression. They say it in this self-important way, as if it's this deep philosophical concept. It is what it is. There's a passivity inherent in the expression. It drives me mad, this willingness to give up, this willingness to not fight, to just shrug your shoulders. And it drives me mad that they say it in such a noble, evolved way. It is what it is. It is what it is. They live in Florida, but in the summer months, they go back to upstate New York and live in a camp on Oneida Lake. I sat down with my mother on a beautiful, windy day in August. The, the thing that I struggle with the most is after they moved away, I remember their new house, they had an event, a party or something. And I dragged you along. Yes. You told me that already. You've already discussed that one with me, that it was a terrible thing that I'd I asked you to go with us. You did that. It, it was stu stupidity. That, like, that was, one of the, that was one of the most terrifying things I've ever been through in my life. I was going to that house and just being wary of where that guy was, and I felt like for sure he was going to hurt me because he, he always told me that if I told somebody, he would know right away. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, I didn't want to get in the car. I didn't want to get out of the car. I didn't want to go in the house. He made me do all those things. That was so hurtful. Yeah. I always just feel like, you know, maybe this comes from your mother. It comes from his parents. But there's a cruelty in our family. That was really bad. Yeah, you told me that. I just remember him walking around the fringes of the room, and I just tried to stay close to you. I was sure I was going to get hurt. <coughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, do you remember that day at all? 
Do you remember what you were thinking? No, I don't remember that. It was too long ago. Like I said, a lot of the stuff I just tried to brush off and hopefully it would go away, but unfortunately it was damaging you severely and I didn't know that. And I can't fix it. I can't go back and fix anything. But never think for a moment that I don't love you. I'm sorry, I'm sad for you. And I wish I could fix it. I wish we had the perfect family and the best relationship, but we don't. We're all broken. Why do I come here? I don't know. I just leave. To get abused. Well, you are parts of us. That's the unfortunate part. You are a part of me. You're part of your father. Unfortunately, we can't pick and choose who we want to be a part of. I wish we were the parents and the family that you should have, but we aren't. And I, I'm sorry for the way your father treated you growing up, as well as all the other things, bad things that happened to you in your life. And I should have taken you away from him. Maybe it would have been better if I'd taken you away from his abuse. You might have been, things might have been better in your life. You turning away from me when I needed you, that was, that was really hard. Yeah. Well, I can't fix it. There's nothing I can do or I say know, to make it better. I don't know what to do either. I don't know who it is. But anyway. Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to find my way back. Well, I want you to, I want to help you find your way back. I don't like what you're going through. You still have years left to live. I, I, I want, you had wonderful things happen to you so far in your life. You've traveled places that I only read about in books and done things that I never do. I just got out of here as soon as I could. Oh, it's a good thing you did. No, I know. I mean, I just, I just knew there was nothing here. But you look, just think about all the things you've done and seen in your life that nobody oh, ever I, does. I don't have any regrets that I left. I just don't think I had a choice. It was never an option for me to stay. Oh no, absolutely not. So I just know. knew that whatever, that if there was anything for me in the world, it was out someplace else. Yes, that's true. And I didn't know where it was. I feel sad when you go away that I think you'll never come back. I always want to come back. And I always think that I am going to come back. But then when I left last time, you were here too so long. Bad. We had a bad, we had a really bad time. I, that, that's the part of our family that I don't understand. And maybe that's, maybe it's made it difficult for me to be part of this family. If you're not getting good things, there are things that are helpful for you. Then why do you stay away? Then that's, stay away, huh? Yeah, I, I don't get that. Well, staying away is hurtful. Like I said, we're running out of time. Uh -uh. That's it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you'll live another 20 years. I don't want to. I asked my mother to talk about her own childhood, and she tells me something that I didn't know. Sure, I can tell you anything you want to know about my past, how difficult my little girl times were. Yeah. When I was a little girl that I was sexually abused by the hired man that lived up, slept upstairs with the rest of us. And he would get in my bed every single morning. There was a big room. There, my brother slept in one double bed, and my Bobby slept in a, a raw, an iron crib in the middle, and I slept in a single bed, and the hired man just came in every day. And I never told my mother until long after that happened. 
that wasn't the only attempt on my on, on myself. That wasn't the only attempt. I mean, there there were two other two or three other men that were after me too. So, and I was a little girl, so it wasn't just one person. Yeah. This phone is killing me. That was probably maybe within a, a year period of time. Eventually, the hired man got let go. He was like a drunk, and he slept upstairs in one of the bedrooms in the farmhouse. So. And that was it. I was a little girl. I probably was five or six years old. I was very little. So, And she really didn't console me. The she my mother is referring to is her own mother. She didn't yeah. do anything about it. So it was just a part of my life that happened. And yeah. she, my mother was really too busy. There were five of us. Sure. My father drank. My mother had to run the whole show. So she had no time really to sit down and um, help me through that. But... I, I closed that door in my life. I don't. I don't want to really open it back up again. It's done. Mm -hmm. I'm 72 years old. I'm too old to go back to fix. I can't fix it anyway. It mm -hmm. happened to me. It happened to me a lot, mm -hmm. more than one time. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember how long it was, but it was a long period of time. And I never told my mother. And my brothers were all in the same room with me. It was one big room with three beds. Or Do you think they knew what was happening? Probably not. They were little. We were little kids then. Mm -hmm. I'm sad. Why are you sad? For you. I'm here trying to figure this out. It's not like I, I gave up on it and I'm doing crystal meth, you know? <laughs> it's like Maybe we should do that. It. Maybe we'd feel better if we did that. What do you think? I feel angry about that guy. I'm, I'm, I know you do. I feel angry about the guy in your life. I feel angry about my right, guy Right, what? My life. I can't, the guy in my life is dead. But I still feel angry about it, and I still feel angry that he's been taking kind of stuff from kids for a long time. Yeah, well, what can you do? Well, one thing you can do is you can call the police. Someone actually did call the police on the guy who molested me uh, a few years ago, and he was arrested. There was a story in the newspaper about it, and my mother saw the story, clipped the story out of the newspaper, and planned on sending it to me. But she never actually did send it to me. And the guy, the guy who molested me when I was really little, he somehow went free. I know. He got away with it. I know, he got arrested and he got away with it. How he got away with How he got away with it, I don't know. It is what it is, you can't pick your parents. We did the best we could, and. Who knows how we ruin each other's lives. My mom and I start talking about her relationship with my father. I know you guys had a lot of conflict when we were growing up. We did, and yeah, it's it, because it's it was a difficult relationship. I should have gotten out of it. Yeah, I should have gotten out of it, but I didn't. I was stupid, so I stayed. These things still affected you? It affected your marriage? It, it affected, a, like, absolutely it affected, affected who you it became did. as absolutely. a person? Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like what happened to me affected who I became as a right. person and still, still causes me trouble. I never really, I never accepted it, that it was a real thing until I was maybe in my late 30s or early 40s. Right. And I didn't even, I knew it was always there, I just never looked at it. Right. I stayed away from it, but probably, like I feel like you know, it's affected my sex life. Like Sarah, you know, we have difficulties. I'm just, I'm not easy. It's hard for me to be intimate. 
with anybody. Right. You know, I'm sure intimacy is probably a challenge. Absolutely, for you that's a big thing. But you know, that's what you're one of the complaints that your father has with me. But because of my situation, because of the way I grew up, I really didn't. I really didn't think Grandma loved me. She loved me, but she loved me in the ways that I've told you. You know, we had popcorn and and bath nights and ice cream and Christmas and you know we we just went on with our lives but grandma never dealt with anybody she never really consoled me or tried to help me I don't know if she was capable of it or not and perhaps that that's why I wasn't more helpful to you you know I, I do remember telling you and I do remember you telling me that I must have been mistaken I must have been well I didn't actually think it could happen because you know at that point I was very naive about things like that even though what happened to me happened, I would never dream in a million years that it would happen to my own child. Well, that's what I said, it can't be happening. And that's why I know what happened to me and I know what happened to you, that I try to warn other people. What's happened to me has already caused a lot of problems in my life. So I try to warn other people ahead of time in 25 words or less to be very careful of your children, girls or boys. I never dreamed in a million years that anybody would ever do anything to my children. I was very protective of you. When you were little boys, the neighbors used to laugh because I didn't want you to go outdoors and get dirty. I wanted you to stay pristine. Like, I didn't think you loved me. <laughs> of course I do. Because I just felt like... I just felt like... If I was in trouble, I could have come to you for help. And, and I wasn't there to help you, yeah. And I just, I didn't know what to do after that. I had yeah. no other... You didn't have any direction. But I'm sorry that I was not more capable of helping you or understanding what you were going through. And of course, don't ever think for a moment, I didn't, I love you, you're my life. I, I wish the times that we have left would be good. I know, but you know, and that's, that's why I'm here. You're, you're sorry, I know you're sorry. I could. I can feel that you're sorry, but I'm still trying to fill in the holes in my heart that are there. I'm still trying not to let this corrupt my relationship with Sarah the way every other relationship in my life has gone up in smoke. This guy did that for decades. Well, molested people. I know. He got away with it. I know, he got arrested. Well, that's what I don't understand what possesses a, an, an adult to pursue little children. Well, and, and even infants. What possesses them to do that? I don't know. Sad times for us. Maybe this is a crummy thing to say, but I hear in her voice, there's a sense of camaraderie that she gets from the experience of knowing that we both went through this. She's less alone, and she's not the only one now. And like you said, it affected my whole life too. That created a lot of problems with Bob. The Bob she's referring to is my father her husband since 1967. But even even because of that, those problems, it's just so many things that he's mixed up with and his life is all screwed up. And he does, ha he has a lot of hate inside of him, you know, and anger. Eight months before this interview, my mother had mailed a blanket that she had crocheted herself for me, an Afghan. It arrived in Toronto in a box. When it arrived, I, I was annoyed. What the hell is she sending me a blanket for? I'm 49 years old. I took it out of the box and I threw it on the bed and I went to sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I realized that I was somehow sleeping under it and I was feeling warm and protected and loved. But that blanket you sent to me is, is really special. 
Well, it should be. <laughs> no, it is. I still have the blue one that you made for me when I was a kid. Yeah, you said and you then, did. Uh, like that, that one you sent to me, like I sleep underneath it almost every night. Yeah. I worked hard on it. I know you did. I know it's hard work, and I just I think that is the best thing I've got. Well, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, it's really one of the most important gifts I've ever had in my life. So I appreciate you doing it. Well, I'm glad you appreciate it, and then you like it. And it's you know it just reminded me that that you do still love me. I do. <clears throat> I just hope you don't stay away because I miss you. try to come back more often. If it's too painful, you don't have to. I understand. After this, we both exhale. We stand up and stretch. She asks me if we're done, and I tell her that we're done. I don't know if we accomplished anything, but we did a lot of talking. My throat's sore. Thank you so much, Mom. sweaty. So are you. You're worse than I. But it's cooling down. It looks like it's getting cloudy out, doesn't it? The deck is unduly rich in these kinds of cards, the high cards, such as these. This is Mastering Pac-Man author Ken Houston trying to explain the concept of card counting on an old episode of 60 Minutes. That's one of the reasons. The other is that the house must hit until it has a total of Ken died in 1987. He had a heart attack in Paris. Hello. Hello. Yes, I can hear you. Hi, Bethann. Oh my gosh, sorry about that. Hi. This is Beth Ann Houston. She's Ken Houston's oldest daughter. I'm such a big fan of your dad's. And like I have his book here, like I literally keep it on my desk. And um, you know, I'm not a big gambler. And so I'm not a, you know, I don't really know his work when it comes to like blackjack and stuff like that. But I know he was really revered for his work and in, in the gambling side of life. But the book that really means the most to me is the Pac Man book, of course. Yes, I know. It was a big deal, that book. I remember. Big deal. Yeah, my dad was on tour. He was doing all the uh, Today shows mm -hmm. and throughout the country. Um, and he invited me to one of them in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And I still have the tape of him. He was talking to Jane Polly. Yeah. And then what he do, I think he went on Merv Griffin too, but he just put that one quarter in and just showed them how they, he just would play Pac-Man for hours and hours. How old were you when he was writing this book? Do you remember him writing this? Uh, yeah, actually my sister's, uh, she's a little younger than me and she helped him mm -hmm. um, out in San Francisco at his apartment. She helped kind of edit and write the book. But I mean, not to completely date myself, but I mean, maybe in the 20s I was. Okay. Early 20s. And do you remember, did you ever play Pac-Man with your dad or was, was it mostly oh, your did. sister? Yeah, you did. Okay. Well, my father... He was so funny. He gave us these little Pac-Man machines mm -hmm. for Christmas one year. And I think I still have mine somewhere. And he taught us as much as he could, but we couldn't keep up with that brilliant mind of his. Yeah. He, uh, he seemed like he was really gifted in so many ways. He had a 
a genius IQ. He mm-hmm. went to Yale, Harvard, was a whiz at the his first major job at the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange in San Francisco. And so when you have that intellect mm-hmm. and that mindfulness, you know, everything is interesting, but then mm-hmm. you lose interest fast. So he would get bored very easily. And I'm sure he got bored with Pac-Man. Well, yeah, he actually did, but it kind of introduced him to the, all the other games and Coleco hired him to yeah. test their new games. Yeah. So my dad really dabbled in video games um, throughout most of the 80s and wrote books about them, which I still have these books but yeah. they would just pay him to test their games pac-man you know was huge for me and this book like ken's book just meant so much to me like i i keep it on my desk uh i've kept it on my desk for you know for 20 years like i i refer to it a couple times a week and i just i just really i, I i'm just sad that your dad's no longer here and that i can't thank him in person but i just wanted to say to you uh, on behalf of your dad, like his, his book means a lot to me. I just don't know if I would have gotten through what I went through in my childhood without your dad's words. Well, that's so interesting, Scott. Video games, just like TV and our movies that we love, they are an escape. You know, my teenagers are playing that new game. I forget what the name Fortnite. is. Fortnite. Thank you. Yeah. They're playing that night and day. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I'm sorry that you, when you mention your childhood and, and your family yeah. background, a lot of people have struggled, obviously, with yeah. their families. And I'm glad that that was some sense of, um, gave you some sense of purpose. People still ask me for the book and how to buy it. Yeah, it still means a lot. It'll probably always mean a lot. And um, I, I'm just sorry that your dad died so young. I mean, last week he would have been 84 years old. And I think he would have enjoyed seeing his eight grandchildren. So, Uh. yeah. Well, I'm very grateful for you for reaching out and to be, you know, memorializing my dad. He deserves it. You know, my dad also, I don't know if you know this, Scott, but he played the piano. What didn't he do? He could do everything. Yeah, he's a, he was amazing jazz piano player. His idol was Errol Garner. So that's something that I carry, that I have on my desk and in my car, is the audio CD of my dad playing the piano. Sometimes it's hard to listen to, it makes me sad. But uh, he was pretty amazing in that department too. Next time on Heavily Pixelated. I head back to Grand Zero, back to the place where this happened 40 years ago. I go back the woods and there's still one more boss to fight I actually went out in the garage and I had a baseball bat out there and I remember getting the bat all of a sudden I was just thinking if I do this I know I'm going to kill him I have a conversation with my father Special thanks to Beth Ann Houston. Beth Ann sent me a track of her father playing piano. Uh, Ken couldn't read music, so he would play piano by ear. What you're hearing right now is Ken improvising on the piano. Thanks also to Stephanie Belding. Stephanie listened to an earlier version of this episode and gave me notes for revision. She's done that a couple of times and I've never thanked her before, but thanks, Steph. I really appreciate it. 
Music tracks provided by the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Tracks include Hachiko the Faithful Dog by the Kyoto Connection, Vitoro from the Blue Dot Sessions, Finding Beauty in Broken Things from Walt Thisney, That Ain't Chopin from D. Yan Key, and finally After You Go by Adam Leonard, who was a guest on Heavily Pixelated earlier this season. Sarah Deakins is the producer. Stephen Nikolic is the show's technical producer. And I'm Scott C. Jones. Hey, listen, thank you so much for listening and, and sticking with us. It really means a lot. That's it for now. We'll see you next time.